Welcome to Cross of Gold, the podcast where two brothers, one a Christian in the political wilderness and the other a socialist in the spiritual wilderness, work to rediscover faith in each other, our communities, and the American experiment. We have begged and they have walked when our calamity came. We beg no longer, we defy them. You shall not press down upon the brow of labor this crown of thorns. Hello and welcome back to a very exciting new episode of Cross Gold. Uh, this is Cyrus, your socialist brother speaking here as always with my Christian brother, Chase. Chase, how are we doing today? And Cato, of course, in the bottom right corner of the frame, uh, sucking down a bottle of what appears to be some very fine breast milk. Um, trying to cut Cato out of this uh, when he enjoins us. You know. <laughs> well, he doesn't say a lot. So. Well, he's listening. Yeah, trying to discern right from wrong, which is a uh, tough enough job for uh, me, much less a baby. So yeah. anyway, um, very good. Yes, yeah, Iris, you know what? Um, uh, still sort of doing some some rotations on my mind since our Matt discussion, but we have gotten a new logo. Uh, you know what? We wanted to take on a totally new topic today. So how do we approach this, man? Yeah, well, this has been, yeah, as you say, a little bit of a sea change in uh, the podcast. And I think it, we wanted to take this as an opportunity to maybe broach some topics or start to get in some topics that we've been a little hesitant to, to dive into full, full force. And the one I'm thinking of specifically in the topic of this episode is uh, the function and uh, character of American foreign policy. Um, the reason I say that's a topic we've been hesitant to dive into is because, in my opinion, it's probably among the biggest divides, the greatest size of the chasm between, you know, someone on the socialist left and someone on the Christian right. Um, that it, it'll take a lot of work for us to, to bridge that gap, is what I'm saying. Uh, but... You know, there's no time like the present and uh, doesn't bridge doesn't start getting built until we start building it. That's right. And you know what, before, as we're diving in here, a quick ode to the, to the new logo for our faithful listeners out there, we changed because we had tons of people either not listening uh, or giving us the first remark of, oh, wow, like this is a religious podcast. And we're certainly a truth seeking podcast in spiritual matters as well as political matters, but uh, you know, maybe best rep- best not represented by a church. I like the Jesus driving out uh, the money changers in the temple because we've got a lot of purifying, sanitizing, some cleansing to do ourselves with our own beliefs and opinions. And, um, you know, from some previous conversations that it's developed a bit of a distrust yeah. of institutions. Yeah. Cato too. Yeah. So. <laughs> It's uh, it's throwing out all the uh, immoral and corrupt influences that are uh, leading us astray from from righteousness. Um, but if anyone thinks this is a Christian podcast after this episode, I think they'll think it was one of the it's probably the most metal Christian podcast out there because uh, we're going to get into some some pretty nitty gritty stuff. So, uh, you know, hope you'll bear with us as we as we go through this. Hope you won't turn it off, uh, you know, as soon as I say an opinion that sounds insane or Chase says an opinion that sounds insane, but this is how the dialogue begins. So 
And so where do we start with this foreign policy? Cyrus, do you remember anything? We've had a number of conversations, especially when I was in high school, where we started really like start chopping up this stuff. I mean, Iraq war was happening during that time. So any yeah. you know, roots to this? I mean, my first memories of like American foreign policy in general are very like, like I remember seeing pro like I was born in 1995. So I was fairly young when the Iraq war started. Um, and I remember seeing like protests on the TV and like you and dad talking about how we should go egg them. Um, uh, <laughs> so that was kind of my, I, I don't remember. I mean, listen, I was young, so maybe I'm crossing my wires, but I definitely remember something to that effect. And I was all on board. Actually, this is a good story. I don't know. Dad might get mad at me for telling this, but, uh, I remember I was in first grade and, you know, that's obviously 9-11. It was a fairly uh, fever pitch time in America. And I don't remember the context exactly, but I remember asking dad that if Osama bin Laden walked down the street, if I would be allowed to shoot him. Uh, <laughs> and I think dad just said something to the effect of, yeah, I mean, I, I guess if it came to that. Um, and I proceeded to go tell the first grade teacher at my Christian school that my dad told me I could go shoot Osama bin Laden. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's uh didn't so, totally you know, create good teacher the, uh, parent relations yeah yeah no and i don't say that to color dad because he's you know fairly uh libertarian i feel like when it comes to foreign policy and more of an isolationist than anything but um all that to say that that was sort of the jingoistic mentality that was like gripping america during the, the ferment of my youth well, yeah, man, if anybody doesn't remember uh, George Bush, given that, you know, I don't know if it was a state of the union or just an address to, you know, the, the representatives, but he was talking about the um, like the, the dialogue on the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. And, you know, when he said, like, let's roll, I, I still get goosebumps thinking about that, to be honest with you. Yeah, no, that was I, I remember that. I remember watching that on TV um, and growing up with that, you know, just everywhere I was around. We always lived, not always, but, you know, I went to a Christian school when we lived in Nevada and then we moved to Idaho, which, you know, about as conservative as it gets. So there's always been a strong deference to the American military and, and American foreign policy wherever I've I've lived. And, you know, we both went to West Point also. So, you know, I can't really say that I escaped that uh, fully in, until later. But uh, all that to say that this is sort of, you know, the context for, for what we're speaking about now. Yeah. And then, you know what, maybe because we have s such different perspectives, uh, maybe best to start with some foundation or, or, or how do you want to jump into this? Yeah, no, you're right. Like there that's something I've been thinking about over the last couple of years is just this realization. I think maybe more people are realizing this. This is not exactly an original take, but it's just seems like we're operating with two different versions of history. And if you're living in parallel universes where the facts are different about the way history has gone, then you're going to end up having very different ideas about what that means for the present. So, so that said, I just feel like it might be, a useful thing for some people uh, who haven't had, you know, the, the political education that, that tells us about what American foreign policy is actually based around uh, to, to have that opportunity. So I know you've been dusting off some old history books, some old textbooks. Uh, do you want to walk us through a little bit what you uh, what the American foreign policy apparatus is traditionally 
Yeah, if Kato will let me, let me give it a shot. I'm, I'm quoting a little bit and throughout the episode, probably from Special Providence by Walter Russell Mead. Big fan. Anyway, so here are just four frameworks that he sees a lot of people approach foreign policy or historically our leaders have. And the first is um, Hamiltonians regard it. I'm just going to maybe do some paraphrasing quoting here. Hamiltonians regard a strong alliance between the national government and big business as the key to domestic stability and to effective action abroad. Um, long focused on the nation's need to be integrated with the global economy and, and, and favorably in that way. I know you you better not be a Hamiltonian, Cato. Um, Wilsonians <laughs> believe that well, you probably could. That's not that terrible. Wilsonians believe that the United States has both a moral obligation and an important national interest in spreading American democratic and social values throughout the world and creating like that peaceful international community. Uh, hence, like Wilsonian being the founder of that and the League of Nations, that sort of thing. I feel like that's sort of the modern like Democratic Party line, more or less. Uh, yes, uh, that uh, largely taken, you know, it's saying like, hey, listen, the human rights violations in China um, being some of the most important things going on right now. In fact, like where Trump might come in and say, wait a second, they're manipulating our currency. They can do whatever they want to the, you know, the Uyghurs in, in Western China. That's not affecting me. So different schools yeah. of thought. Yeah. Um, and then you'll see sort of a little bit of, yeah, okay, Jeff, uh, let me, I'll skip to that, Jacksonians, just because I mentioned Trump, believes the most important goal of the U.S. government in both foreign and domestic policy should be the physical security and the economic well-being of the American people. Don't American tread on me, revolutionary flag, that's a Jacksonian, you know, like battle cry there. And, you know, maybe even um, a General Douglas MacArthur, there is no substitute for victory and a victory on America's terms. Like, mm. that's that. Um, like, less nuclear bomb north korea well right i mean if you know there are many kinds of victory but you get well that's what macarthur wanted to do but um touche um yeah and go to war with china um okay finally you've got the jeffersonians and uh this is the crew that's a little bit more skeptical about spreading democracy abroad versus the priority of safeguarding it within our own borders in fact this is the the team that looks at the Wilsonians and maybe the Hamiltonians and sees like, you know, those policies and beliefs sort of lead us to shacking up with unsavory allies and sort of defending their interests as well. And so you can kind of see some of the um, second, third order impacts that the Jeffersonians like and can kind of uh, lead to maybe even sometimes a Jacksonian. And so a lot of people are one or multitude of these things, and you have many different paradigms, whether it be realists or idealists or continental versus internationalists. But like, I think those four are generally um, where we've come from, and a lot of how Americans think about foreign policy now. I don't feel like I necessarily fall into any of those categories. I don't know exactly where you fall into, um, but that framing is is very much based off of like, well, what is your perception of American history? What, what has been our role? Because like a Jeffersonian would probably say like, oh, well, that's what Washington intended. Said, you know, don't get entangled with foreign powers. Don't, uh, you know, do any alliances that might, you know, you might come to regret later. So they're, they're probably saying, oh, that's the original idea. Whereas a Wilsonian or a Jacksonian might point to other historical occurrences and say, well, like clearly, you know, we, we, we need to do this. Washington would have never known that we would be in charge of the political and economic apparatus of the entire world, like a Wilsonian does. 
Um, that's really interesting, especially because you say like it is historical, but you don't fit into those. And Cyrus, I think this is foreign policy discussion is interesting between Christians and socialists because it goes to the sort of the heart of our perception of America. And maybe you can take a second to develop on a very high level your perspective of a lot of what American foreign policy has done and why you're maybe not one of those four and you're sort of trying to define that for yourself. Yeah, sure. I mean, this is a, obviously a pretty huge subject and I'll couch this in the terms of, I went to West Point by my own free volition. I joined the, the US military, um, you know, thinking that it was overall a good thing. Uh, you know, I was torn about certain things, was never really a supporter of the Iraq war or anything like that, but uh, that was sort of my mentality is, I think what most Americans mentality is, which is like, yeah, the USA has done some unsavory things, but overall more good than bad. Um, however, that is obviously what the country we live in would like us to think about the things we do abroad and here. And my experience in the military and then learning more of what I consider to be, you know, the true history of American foreign policy has and not to mention speaking with and reading the accounts of other people across the world who consider America to be the most dangerous country in the world, most biggest threat to global peace, you start to realize, man, maybe I have been uh, a little bit brainwashed by, uh, you know, constant propaganda that says America is the greatest country in the world. Um, and so that's kind of where the journey, the journey began. Why do you think that? Well, I think that a lot of the success stories that we were told, you know, like even I was raised thinking that we won the Vietnam War, you know, thinking that was overall like, yeah, U.S. has never lost a war or that that we won World War Two single handedly. We sit back to back, you know, those remember those T-shirts and hats back to back World War champs. Uh, you know, that was that was the culture we, we grew up in. And there's so much about that that's either a half truth or a misconception or just a blatant lie. It, 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 I almost don't know where to start because there's so many different you know, ways I could describe why I believe what I believe. But where do you think I should jump in? Okay, so you were just talking about the inherent goodness or badness of American foreign policy and therefore America. And so maybe you can give us some quick um, examples of, youth, uh, of, of badness, not just like we weren't the only ones to win World War II. Well, you know, why don't I start with uh, Chile? I think Chile is a great example of, of America, um, of American foreign policy, and especially in the 20th century, which was a country that historically was dominated by imperial powers in a lot of ways, gained independence, started to develop its own political situation uh, that was mostly, you know, dominated by, you know, military juntas and that sort of thing, like most of Latin America was. Uh, but in uh, the late 60s and early 70s, it took a turn towards the left, like a lot of South American countries did. And Salvador Allende, the uh, candidate from the Socialist Party, was elected president of Chile. And then, uh, you know, with a plan, pretty moderate social reforms, more like a Bernie Sanders sort of candidacy, but like land reform for the peasants who had labored under the haciendas and the ranches of, of the Chilean elite for, for, you know, at that point, centuries. Um, and I'll put it in the words, I think uh, there's no better words to put it in than those of Henry Kissinger, who said, 
I don't see why we need to stand by and watch a country go communist due to the irresponsibility of its people. The issues are much too important for the Chilean voters to be left to decide for themselves. That is what I would say has been the general attitude of the American establishment and uh, American foreign policy since World War II. And I can point to so many other examples. Guatemala in the 1950s, uh, Cuba in the 1960s, Vietnam, Cambodia, other Southeast Asian countries, uh, the Congo in, uh, you know, innumerable African countries. And I don't mean to say innumerable, but many, many. There's, the number is, in my, if I'm not mistaken, in, in the 60s of countries that we personally have done regime change to uh, because they were moving a direction we didn't like. Iran. Iran. I mean, so many of our problems today. Now, I don't want to leave the British out of this because, in my opinion, they're the progenitor of many of these problems. But we have certainly exacerbated them. I mean, our biggest enemies now and our, the current conflicts we're engaged in are the result of U.S. imperialism. I think Afghanistan, uh, when we there was a uh, socialist uh, or communist party rose to power in Afghanistan and we armed the Mujahideen and the uh, Islamic fundamentalist rebels in order to destabilize that government. Now, who are we fighting? In Iran, we overthrew the socialist democratically elected Mossadegh, uh, who was then replaced by the Shah, who was then overthrown by Islamic fundamentalists. And that's who we're dealing with now. Uh, I think to immigration, and I think Guatemala, Nicaragua, Ecuador, El Salvador, uh, <laughs> Chile, Brazil, Colombia, all of these places that we deliberately have done regime change to or messed, meddled in the affairs of their government that destabilized those places, making them essentially unlivable. Uh, all these people who, you know, would probably prefer to live in the places they've lived in for generations uh, are forced to move because of lack of opportunity or fear of danger. Okay, so we've got a spotty track record. Um, however, <laughs> I, I'll formulate my response in pre-World War One, post-World War One here, because, um, and I'll go pre-World War One from America's perspective, looking out, looking out for American interests. Um, I, by all intents and purposes, foreign policy-wise, like we've crushed it, right? Like we started like as a, basically a, a rebellious nation. We're able to do, and I'm not doing this in chronological order, span a continent. Certainly, given some egregious human rights violations and um, just straight up lying and thievery of, of land moving westward, but nonetheless, took, took over a continent, um, embarrassed Great Britain a few times, handled our own civil war, even though the, the meddling of foreign powers were trying to overthrow and topple that. Um, we established hemispheric hegemony. We um, began our empire. It really began an empire. So, I mean, and now again, post World War One, um, after World War One, we became the world's financial superpower, or, or, or certainly on the road to now that Germany got knocked down a peg and France and Britain were significantly um, hurt from it. Post World War Two, um, you, you, I mean, yeah, we became the world's undisputed superpower, particularly the social uh, Soviet Union. You know, and with the fall of the, you know, the Soviet Union, the world superpower unilaterally. And so, I guess to, to take a step back. One thing that you said, like we've done a lot of destabilizing and a lot of kicking over and toppling governments for our own interests. But I think it like it certainly doesn't appreciate the fact that our presence, um, namely our military and socioeconomic presence, has stabilized the world. 
and I really mean on a macro trend, but you have some of the world's most warring countries in world history, man, Korea, Japan, England, Germany, um, most of the countries in Eastern Europe, uh, Western Europe as well. Uh, we drop uh, a base there, tens of thousands of soldiers, and you have ideas like the McDonald's theory coming out where like where there are McDonald's, there aren't a lot of wars and, you know, GDP per capita goes up, but McDonald's isn't going places where they can't rely on like, uh, let's just put it this way. American capitalism does not go where American foreign policy and its economic might doesn't have a stabilizing presence. And so like, that was a reason John McCain had said like, well, the grand strategy here, and I'm super paraphrasing in Iraq was, you know, an untold, and this is also Erickson Shecky, like an untold amount of men and, and soldiers for an untold amount of years, like hundred years. Like we built an embassy in Baghdad bigger than the Vatican because like Iraq was going to be a Germany play. You know, we drop divisions in Iraq and we stabilize the Middle East one country at a time. And like, so that's now that is super American, you know, arrogance there. And I'm not sort of, I guess what I'm trying to say is from that perspective, like, you know, our shining light has done good for the world. Now, no, you're, I mean, I think you're right in the sense of like, I don't mean to interrupt you if you're going to keep going, but I just like, yeah, we are the biggest bully on the block that, that has been the, the role we've taken, especially post-World War II. We keep the Western European nations mostly in line, although they sometimes drag us into things like Vietnam for their debt. Yeah. It's the French. We can't, we we're totally underappreciating the just amount the French have just, that's true i don't want to leave them out of this yeah you can't score out the british and then without (laughs) giving black marks to the french i guess well so and you know here's a little bit of my confusion cyrus because i've i see what you just said and i'm i think considering those sins much more seriously now and i see but i also realize what i just said and i don't know where like our place is is now well we're already an empire and so what do you do with that do you you, you really only have two choices when you're an empire and, and you're, you're faced with, you know, a crisis of, of, you know, public faith, a crisis of, you know, conflicts erupting around the globe. You have the choice to double down on your empireness and continue to ensure the security of the empire, or you can choose to slowly dismantle the empire. And I think we know which choice our political leaders are going to go with. Um, Now, I think you had a really brilliant insight, which is very true, which is that American capitalism doesn't go anywhere, that American foreign policy hasn't cleared for its landing. But I think you have that a little bit backwards. And it's that American capitalism drives American foreign policy in order to, I think, you know, a great example is Haiti or, or, you know, even better, uh, let's, let's go to the, uh, to Indonesia, um, which is the fourth largest country in the world, extremely populous. And you say, hey, there's no McDonald's isn't going to put a place uh, somewhere if they know it's not going to be able to be secured by American capital. And that's true. But what's the price? Is it worth, you know, the slaughter of a million communists by a military dictator that's ruled for decades uh, for order uh, so that Americans can come in and, you know, make mines, uh, create industry, use child labor, so that American well, consumers uh, yeah. can buy goods for less is it, I think it, you're that twisting is, it a little the, bit, right? Bark. Because that's like, what we have to do. Because I don't think that there's like necessarily direct. Like, I'm not that much into the conspiracy of like, okay, our mil, like our military leaders and our political leaders are sending 
you know, military to pave way for like, you know, corporate, uh, you know, infiltration. I do think though, that well, you don't need to be, you don't need to believe in conspiracy theories. This is the stuff the CIA has admitted to. Um, and, and, and that's, and that's just in Indonesia. There's, there's a million other examples I can speak to. And eventually, you know, I think they they really bet on the fact that Americans are willing to look the other way because the comforts that that sort of thing brings the comforts that we live in right now, the nice houses, air conditioning, any restaurant we could possibly imagine within a 30 minute driving distance. Um, all of these things are the, are directly stemmed from, you know, the, the uh, million killed in Indonesia the hundreds okay. of thousands you're, you're, you're off thousands. Base. It's like you've got to be able to draw much stronger links than saying us killing a million in indonesia are the reasons we have restaurants 30 minutes away well how do you think we're able to afford ipads and and the clothes that we have is it because uh we have such great they have such great labor practices in in china and indonesia or is it because people work in sweatshops because the uh socialist and communist governments in those countries were overthrown um and we're american capital and a foreign investment is allowed to flow freely yeah man you don't at some think point that though, has like any those impact countries, hey, wait, time out though like it's 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 some point though like those countries have to take like use china for example responsibility for the manipulation and the devaluing of their currency right which allows um not just labor but raw materials to be much cheaper they're doing something intentional like a long-term play to attract capital investors to invest in their country um like apple right and so like they're getting what they're what they're going for, and so like is it is it is it immoral? And I'm not, I'm saying yes, employing children for like pennies on the dollar is immoral. But is it immoral for them to try to attract American capital with like policies that would bring them? Like I, I don't necessarily think it is. And and I think we also have to like kind of in this like Wilsonian like mindset. We got to be very careful of imposing our values, which are still very evolving. By the way, and 50 years ago we would consider like them backwater like our 2021 values in modern day America to other countries that like don't have the same priorities, particularly morally or culturally that we do. Does that make sense? That's very interesting coming from a a conservative who, who, I mean, like, like you're talking about like that American foreign policy is exactly about imposing our values on, on other people. It's about no, putting I, McDonald's so, 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 in every so, foreign country. Again, we want to keep <laughs> this conversation from being convoluted, but the one, they're short-term and long-term. And I would agree there's a lot of things that could be in our short-term best interest that would logically be in our long-term disadvantage. But, and it's not about playing our culture, or our values, typically like on any fight or any politics or any military like endeavor, it's about imposing our will, right? And our will might be for a long-term trading partner. I think I would uh, disagree with people who would advocate for, short-term will if it comes at the expense of long-term disadvantages right like so if we um instituted or helped coup uh, a leader in a country right like uh, that was anti-communist i would say we were probably making short-term calculations under the domino theory to uh, stand up against communism did we really do the long-term calculus um no it didn't seems like we did it, it seems like we didn't or maybe it seems like we did and we thought like it wouldn't really matter and we or we would just pick up the collateral damage once we were the you know undisputed world superpower and we are the or were the uh, you know undisputed world superpower largely we still are we're just not picking up the pieces like we probably had the moral obligation to well and i i guess i would say 
you know, in addition to that, that I think you're right that the people who instigated these many of these things, you know, the, the CIA agents who were responsible for deposing most today or Suharto in Indonesia, sorry, Sukarno, replacing Suharto, um, they really believed that they were fighting against evil. I think a lot, maybe some of them didn't, you know, Alan Dulles strikes me as the type that didn't really give a shit about that. But many of the people actually doing it thought they were like, well, we have to kill them so they won't kill us. Um, that that was a mentality that they had, that they believed communism was a great evil. But that's why I think anti-communism in general is such a virulent and dangerous ideology, because it says, well, we have to kill them before they kill us. We have to genocide them before they genocide us. We have to overthrow them before they overthrow us. Uh, without any real <laughs> evidence that that's actually a danger that, that is being posed. You know, I think, I think Guatemala is probably a, a really great example of that short-term calculus being something that was super important, uh, but the long-term calculus being something that is, we're still dealing with the effects of today, even though it happened in the 1950s which was a not even socialist leader, but someone who just wanted mild land reform, former military officer, Jacobo Arbenz, was deposed by the U.S. military, or uh, sorry, not the U.S. military, the CIA. Um, and a military dictator took over and ruled Guatemala for decades, um, causing mass suffering. Later on, the U.S. went back into Guatemala uh, Elliot Abrams, who was in the Trump administration, was very much a part of death squads going around murdering whole villages of peasants. Um, and this was all in the name of anti-communism. This was all in the name of the, the fear of socialism taking that, over. Uh, and that is, you know, like we're still like Guatemala is still a huge problem today. I think you've made a solid point that in, in the past and certainly in the future, anti-socialist or anti-communist uh, movements or pushes or justifications need to be closely guarded uh, because of our historical sins as like a, a very possible for justifying hanosities. So I forget who came up with that word, but it, it's a good one. I, I um, guess I just feel that like in general, yes, America has provided order, but for a very specific subset of people and that's the ruling establishment elite of the western uh economically dominant countries well and i think and and, and to an extent the, the the citizens of those countries but across the rest of the world it has only led to instability famine danger death destruction well i think that it's really interesting just because there are two schools of thought on like why foreign policy is bad or why why our, why our foreign, foreign policy goes in directions we don't want it to. And the two groups with grand generalizations largely blame either the elites or the public. Like one, like the elites and a lot of public would say, well, you know what? I mean, it's our own fault that we don't pay attention enough in our politics and in our foreign policy. Like even, you you mentioned Kissinger, right, earlier. Um, I think there's a quote, like during the Reagan administration, he had said something like 30% or so of like a poll at the time thought the Contras were fighting in Norway and it's you know really Nicaragua. And so, <laughs> um, you know, one other thing he had said, which is only exacerbated by technology, but just check this uh, Kissinger quote out. He says, uh, the current generation, 
uh, being raised, and I think this is in the mid 90s, being raised on television rather than books has learned to form impressions rather than to have ideas. The result of our ignorance is a foreign policy that rejects the tried and true method of maintaining the balance of power to base itself on a belief that you can solve problems by a missionary activity like uh, spreading democracy. Um, so I think, you know, if boy, if we. It's the real politique of of kissinger it's it's honestly it's almost indistinguishable from uh the uh like a head of government of prussia in the uh 1800s metternich it was like yeah it doesn't really matter what happens as long as the balance of power between the great powers is maintained interesting um, uh prussia yeah quote there i am uh, which a- you know prussia is i think you know historically one of the most reactionary and conservative style uh, governments in the history of, of, you know, modern civilization, at least. Yeah. Uh, quote attributed to Otto von Bismarck. Uh, God has a special providence for fools, drunkards and the United States of America. Uh, <laughs> specifically talking in relation to their foreign policy. Um, to the point of finishing up this, like, you know, why is our foreign policy so like jacked and why people think so rather than blaming an uninformed public, a lot of people blame elites a lot largely what you're talking to cyrus and so i found this a quote from okay it'll be a paraphrase uh from pat robertson who's the founder of christian coalition uh big you know a christian legislative uh, lobbying group there um and basically saying that the the inner core of the council on foreign relations like flirts with satanic conspiracy to pave the way for the antichrist Basically, I think the one world government, one currency, you know what, serving the elites and the people who um, can do those sorts of things. I mean, uh, um, even Noam Chomsky, um, who's, you know, an MIT linguist, linguistics professor, basically he, he does this huge study and says that like um, whenever we get involved, like uh, human rights violations go up and that's torture, torture, uh, force reduction of living standards, police sponsored death squads, as you've said. Destruction of institutions, independent unions, like all correlated with U.S. government support. And so, um, yeah, no, it's, that's actually it's, I'm glad you brought Noam Chomsky up. And I have my my various quibbles with with Chomsky. Yeah, I'm not perfect. Uh, but I think I think he's a, he's largely right on a lot of his talk about American foreign policy. And it, it just reminds me of a story I think most Americans who you know grew up in the last 20 years or so remember. Um, and that's the story of Pat Tillman. Um. And I think Pat Careful Tillman, on this one. We've got a lot of people who are Pat fans. So just state your facts listen, and let's, let's, I'm a, let's, I'm let's a huge Pat fan. Keep Pat, Pat is a great guy. He's a great American. Um, so and the reason give, I say that, give a brief intro to people who might not be aware of some of the, you know, uh, his thoughts and beliefs on, upon his, you know, his, death, his un, uh, untimely death. True. True. Yeah. So Pat Tillman was a uh, former safety for the Arizona Cardinals. I think I'm getting that right. Um, had a massive contract, uh, extremely talented football player. He was 25, um, I think, when 9-11 happened. And he decided to enlist in the U.S. military. Um, now, Pat was already a little bit different of a military recruit. Um, one, he was an atheist. Two, he was a liberal. Um, but he, he felt it was his responsibility to defend his, his fellow countrymen uh, after the, the attacks of September 11th. So he forego, uh, he, he decided to forego his contract and enlist in the U.S. military. Um, now, during his time in the military, his views on the war 
began to change dramatically. Sort of began with uh, the, the rescue of Jessica Lynch. Uh, I don't fully remember all that story, but I remember that Pat Tillman's beliefs about it were this is like a total PR stunt. Like this isn't even a real operation there. This is, this is for the cameras. And, and that, you know, unsettled him according to, you know, the discussions he had with other friends in his unit, uh, stuff he wrote in letters to friends and family back home. Anyways, to bring that full circle, he started to write uh, to Noam Chomsky in the exchange correspondence. And there's many accounts of him saying, you know, this war is effing illegal. Um, I, this is, basically he was he was coming to the realization in real time during his time in conflict in in the middle east that what we were doing was was illegal and then he was killed uh by friendly fire um under sort of you know mysterious circumstances uh and the government tried to cover it up uh, for, for, I mean, it, honestly, for years, they sort of tried to cover it up until it was it's a sad really, story, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you probably know more about that side of it than I do, but even people as high up in the government is, and uh, military as Stanley McChrystal, we're still saying years later that, you know, the Uni- United States didn't really do anything wrong there. Um, and you know, not to imply anything about the circumstances surrounding Pat Tillman's death, but that is a great example of how the United States military propagandizes people in the first place uh, with, you know, patriotism and jingoism and all this America is the greatest country on the world stuff enough to get them to enlist. And then when they become a counterexample to uh, that, that, that narrative, they're, they even co-opt that person's story as more propaganda. Um, and I, I just think that's, you know, sort of the way it's always worked, especially in the latter half of the 20th century. Hmm. Okay. And going well, on to today. You know what? Um, I think what I'm hearing is you definitely have a bend toward a lot of more of the sins um, in our uh, PR and foreign policy record. Uh, but however, you uh, sort of agree that, you know what, we've done some broad strokes, okay things. Uh, um, I think we need a little bit more education, particularly historically. We've got to bring some people in because I do want to figure out how I should be thinking about foreign policy as a Christian. Uh, like I didn't really fully articulate my, my confusion before, but like I think the Trans-Pacific Partnership was a really good example of how I was really confused because basically – based on that strategy I was just talking about where like, you know, we, we um, have stabilized countries and that brings with it economic prosperity. Uh, well, like what was kind of what we were doing with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we were getting a bunch of our allies in Southeast Asia and even in um, Central South America to agree to economic institutions and norms. And once uh, Japan, Korea included, and once we sort of have a trading block, that is powerful, that is economic and profitable, we could look at places like China and Russia and go, oh, do you want to play along? Like you want to, you want to play on our playground? You have to play by the rules. You can't like use lead and you have to not manipulate your currency so much. And I'm like, oh, wow. Like, man, look at us just crushing it. And like, this is us leading the way economically, but that has been murkied, if that's a word in my mind, because that really hurts. Like American manufacturers and places that have lower labor standards and different things. And I go, well, wait a second, like maybe tariffs are a good thing if, you know, countries that want to pay their, you know, workers peanuts 
want to sell their products in our country. And so I like it's this is confusing. I don't know where as a Christian I need to come down. I do think on one hand, we have to have a respect to like um, to, to the fair treatment of peoples everywhere. And also like we're running a government. And so like, I think there's like a stewardship of like, we've been given, we have to do what's right for our people in a sense, or what's good for our people. So um, I need, I think I need history to kind of help me flesh out where I need to, I think just looking in the past is going to help me look forward in the future. I think, does that make sense? Absolutely. It does. And I think that's as to bring it kind of full circle back to the beginning of this conversation, we, we really can't, even have a lot of these conversations unless we at least somewhat agree on a narrative of the past. Um, because then you're just talking in circles. You're, you're talking about the future and the present in two different alternate dimensions, essentially two parallel universes, because you're talking about two different worlds. If you don't, if you think one history is, you know, completely different from the other. Um, but to your points about the, you know, the TPP in particular, I think that's a really good example of how under capitalism and under the current you know, American dominated economic system that the world more or less participates in, the, there's no, no consideration for the peoples of these countries. The only consideration is for the elites of these countries. In America, in the Philippines, in Japan, in China, it's all the same. Uh, it is an understanding that as long as it's good for the elites, that's that's what matters. And sometimes there's other calculations that have to be taken into the uh, into the calculation of like, well, if we totally decimate all of our manufacturing sector and people are despondent and infuriated, that might be bad for the elites, too. But at the end of the day, they know that all that really matters is that you know, their bottom line gets gets a little bit bigger. Well, yeah, I, um, I don't know if I completely agree with that. I, largely, I do, I guess. Um, I'll just say I mean, all that, the people uh, who make up all these governments are the elites well, of their that, that is largely true. I just am still taking it introspectively like, you know, someone had said, like, suggesting to Abraham Lincoln, uh, paraphrasing that, you know, do he does do he, does he believe that God's on our side? And he, you know, quips back. I think the much greater concern are we on God's. Right. And uh, just doing a cursory read through the Old Testament, like. Certainly, God's, God has a, pre- a promise and a covenant and a preference for the country and the nation of Israel, which we really didn't even get into this kind of, uh, conversation. We thought we would. But it's really fascinating to hear how, like, God will, like, march kings across, you know, thousands of miles to, like, change direction or to you know, different ways. Like, you know, God raises, I believe, nations up and leaders up for his own purposes, even to display his own power if to humiliate them. And so... I do think it uh, Americans and American Christians have a um, Americanist lens that they look on the world like we are God's chosen people in a sense. And I, I think we have to be very careful whenever we start thinking um, we're chosen besides that, like God has given us Jesus Christ. And because of that, we should be thankful and chosen whenever we want to put like the stars and stripes behind that. We start doing things that I think are, we get close to start doing things that are, yeah, like let's, let's put that flag up in other countries because it's so great. And uh, hence my confusion. So no, I mean, I think that, that to go even further, that criticism shouldn't just be levied at like American Christians. I think secular people largely believe that too. And the reason I think that is, is because when you live in a culture and a society, that's just abundant 
it is the land of milk and honey. Oh, dude, can I give you an example? Do you remember? I cut you off. Do you remember when we were in uh, Idaho and we were like we first moved and we went to a minor league baseball game in Boise, and like the gimmick was like you get like a free loaf of bread if you show up, but like there were so many extra like artisan loaves of bread. (laughs) that on the way out they had palletfuls and you could literally take armfuls and just like take them home. Yeah. Like, I remember that. <laughs> yeah. And we are like, Whoa, we're in the land of milk. Like Idaho is the land of milk and honey. Like they're <laughs> giving just away. giving out free food here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and yeah, man, I mean like when you live in that world every single day and you're told that you actually deserve it. Um, I think that does something to your brain. I think you have to start being like, well, if this place has all this much stuff and I am the, the bet, I'm the beneficiary of it. Well, it must be good. Right. Because if it's bad, then I'm the beneficiary of evil. Um, and that is, I think of the root of a lot, because it's very hard to accept the fact that like, yeah, I get to work out whenever i want i have plenty of nice clothes you choose not to eat the fat on your meat or no meat you know what i mean like yeah yeah i can choose to be a vegetarian i go shop at costco and literally buy olive oil by the pallet (laughs) (laughs) and and that's it when you when if you come to the determination that like oh this much abundance exists because other people don't have things because well, uh, see, and, and, though, man. Like, and deliberate. I, I, I agree. With, I disagree with you. I think fundamentally there one, because I think some of what we have is due to blessings. Right. And so there's that. I do think there are some things that we could have gotten or do get because of sins, but I would agree. I would, I just, where I sit this moment with Cato in my arms is that most of it's because of blessings. I do think though, that we need to be very careful and much more and, and motivated, man, to look at like, Hey, like, what are we doing? How are we steward, stewarding this blessing? Particularly, um, you know, confessing and repenting from sins. Or by that, I mean, like, you know, heinous things we've done to other countries. So, yeah, dude, I agree. All those uh, exotic spices and uh, beautiful works of art that ended up in the milk toast island of Great Britain was because of blessings, not because of sins. I, well, I no, I, <laughs> I wouldn't say that either. I would say, though, that like, well, time out, though. And I'm not saying all the, I have no clue of all the spoils that different countries took, but if you have like in a way, the, the, the British helped crack the Nazi empire. I do think in some instance, there's like a bit of like a historical um, moral exception and not even an exception. I don't like that word, like a moral understanding of like a spoils of war. Does that make sense? So well, I, I mean, that's definitely true. I think like going to other countries and just taking their stuff is maybe a little bit different. But if that, if you want us to make that argument, then I think you could point to the same thing in the Soviet Union, which is the largely I would say what most people point to as the most horrific aspect of Stalin's tenure as the as the premier of the Soviet Union would be the Holodomor or the the Great Famine uh, in Ukraine that took most likely millions of lives. And was was in many respects the result of the collectivization of agriculture in order to more efficiently produce it for for the the Soviet Union and and its client states. And that collectivization and large scale industrialization during that period, which caused tons of human misery, is essentially what defeated Hitler. 
Um, Because, I mean, Russia lost, I think, 22 million people compared to the United States, 250,000 during World War II. I don't know my history. It doesn't sound like, though, starving out your people, um, at least in that number, um, is good for business. There's probably other ways to have have gotten your cake and eaten it, too, a little bit. Um, no, well, I mean, in, in, sure. the words, in the words of, of Stalin, uh, you know, who I, I hesitate to quote, but I think in terms of the, the framing you're putting is, is necessary, is in his opinion, he knew the West was going to invade the Soviet Union eventually, which they did. Germany did. And to, to that effect, he said, we have to do in 10 years what, the great, what great Britain did in 100. And they essentially did at, at, great, at great human expense. And there's no denying that, that it was a a lot of horrific stuff happened in service to that goal but that goal i think most historians would agree heavily contributed to the soviet union's ability to defeat germany now there's other i guess there's other yeah let's 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 stop it there just because i don't know and that's a good a good point for getting a historian in here and because i know we need a few all that to say, yeah, I think we've we've covered a lot of the broad strokes. Um, and like you said, we definitely need to get some more uh, educated minds in here to uh, enlighten us as to different perspectives. And some moral ones, too, because, I, you know, I know immigration is one in which socialists and Christians like, you know, disagree on. And so I, I, I want to have a biblical like how I want to have a view of immigrants like Jesus did. And I don't think our Republican Party now does. So. Yeah, let's 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 get into this going forward. Make this a you know a new inclusion into our discussions. Um, With having said all that, Cyrus, we want to make sure after a conversation that's been a bit you know conceptual. How are we making each other better, man? How are we encouraging each other to love? You're leaving here soon for New York. Um, What are some of your goals on the way out? Yeah, yeah. Let's get our head out of the clouds a little bit with uh, foreign policy stuff and bring it back down to stuff we can, you know, really kind of affect in our day to day right now. Um, because, like you said, transitions and, and times of, of leaving and, and seasons changing is a really good opportunity to uh, share with people how you really feel about them, you know, sh- show them some love and your appreciation for you know what they do in your life. So that's kind of one of my goals as I as I exit out these last this last last month or so in Boise is um, you know maybe writing some people some some heartfelt letters or uh, taking them out to coffee just to you know tell them uh, how I feel about them. Oh, that's that's you know. I like that. Um, so really trying to genuinely express some things that you don't make time for or it's awkward to in the middle of a relationship, but maybe encouraging some people with with I heard from you like sort of how you admire them in a way. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we live in a very ironic and sarcastic time. Uh, it's, and it's hard to be earnest um, in that, in that framework. Um, and it seems like cringe, you know, and almost embarrassing to I truly express, you know, your emotions or feelings towards other people. Um, and that is something I definitely struggle with. And so it's almost a, an exercise in me trying to like be a normal human and express those things to people um, without feeling awkward about it. Great, great. Um, and I, I'm gonna put a number on it more to encourage you and keep you accountable if you'll let me. Is there a number of people you wanna have like a really authentic re- interaction with before you leave? And I'll try to you know encourage you and to that. 
Yeah, I'll actually have it typed up in a spreadsheet. Dude, just um, give me the number of people you want to have written a letter to or taken out coffee and told them to be meaningful. Let's say there's there's probably 10. Yeah. Good, oh, good all right. That's a, a high number. Dude, good. I mean, you got 10 people that you want to tell something meaningful to. You should freaking do it. So 10. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it was something small, you know, there's there's been at least 10 people who have had an outsized influence on my life during the nine months or so I've lived here. Based on the amount of weeks left, you need to get like two or three a week. So I'm tracking. Damn, maybe I should have said five. Well, you're on 10. <laughs> Good. Okay. All right. Fine. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, like, what about you, man? I mean, I know you're you're already pretty plugged into a lot of things like your uh, neighbors, homeowners association, your church, starting to get in that city council. But but uh, anything in particular that you're trying to focus on over the next month or so? Well, yeah. So, you know, two things I, I, we had happened recently. So we're um, starting to get back inviting f- folks to our house, which I really enjoy. We had a, a young neighbor couple with a daughter just a month or two older than Cato over uh, wildly different religion, uh, you know, pseudo similar, just, you know, but different. And that was really cool. We got to uh, build a relationship with them. I don't think they've made a ton of, you know, new friends in the neighborhood or anything else like that. So man, enjoy that. And um, another house is being sold um, just, you know, near just like half down the street, you know, maybe six or seven houses down. And in North Texas right now, particularly DFW, like we're having a, a real estate bonanza. Like there are houses that are getting 50, 100 over asking cash right now. And so because we love you our neighborhood. That's mostly homeowners? Is that mostly speculators? Um, I don't know, man. But like a lot of people are moving right to Texas. Now we have a, in Boise, it's a similar thing going where people are yeah. getting 80, 100 over asking price, but it seems like it's mostly like banks buying it. Uh, well, so that's interesting. The banks are moving a little bit into, you know, uh, single family rentals and that sort of stuff. Or um, I don't mean banks, but institutional investors. However, yeah. a lot of people are moving to North Texas. And so, and we just can't keep, you know, the, the supply is under providing the demand. So, yeah. You know, on Saturday, man, we spent like two or three hours outside, like a door, uh, a neighbor, a house or two down from the place that was for sale with like three other sets of neighbors and people just different coming by. And then like, you know, we were just having a good time scoping people out. There was probably five or six kids out there as well. And we had them like scream like banshees whenever we saw people we didn't like uh, <laughs> or, or weren't sure. You know what I mean? And so it yeah, was really yeah. cool, like neighborly. Like we were all sort of in jest, but taking ownership and like, okay, who do we want to come in? And we, you know, we want them to be cool. We want them to show up to have neighborhood parties. I'm like, we have a really unique culture in our neighborhood. So yeah, um, that was cool. And um, yeah, man, you know, I'm going through many interviews. I'll leave it at that Um, just because I'm all over the freaking place. And I think like long-term God might be putting on my heart to teach. I don't know. Uh, I had a mentor, I have a mentor at, uh, dude at our church is also a teacher give me the first days of school to start reading through because that's his like teaching bible and so i've, I've cracked that um Ooh, interesting yeah man i don't know who that's, that's, the heck uh, knows i'm not saying i'm doing that next i just who knows um chase the teacher and football coach that's uh no dude if i could do the, all that um <laughs> I, really I don't know like if you would coach of... football, but I, I feel like you would be hard pressed not to if you were asked. <sighs> yeah, I don't know, man. <laughs> um, I'd could they in, in Texas seniors looks like they have a, like a year where you can like teach a year of econo- or a semester of economics and a semester of U.S. government, dude. Is that not like freaking cool? Um, 
I mean, I would love to teach Texas high schoolers economics in U.S. government. <laughs> anyway. I'd blow um, their freaking minds. <laughs> I'm sure you would. Capitalism. <laughs> you sending them home. With, yeah, you, dude, you'd be. You see the supply and demand graph? You see the supply and demand graph? Gibberish. Don't pay attention. <laughs> Throw it out. Throw it out. <laughs> um, I also just finished the Supernatural Ways of Royalty with Samantha. Uh, again, I, I really listened to it with her. That's fascinating because it's just like, man, like um, anything that uh, yeah, anything other than a son of God is not worth being in my identity box. One of the things I took from that. So fair enough. Fair enough. So we'll see, man. That's, so there that's you that have scoop. it. Yeah. Um, good. We got through this and I think it, I'm just, we need to get some people in here that can sort of shape and, and guide morally and historically. Um, yeah, no doubt. People who, you know, maybe are outside both of our comfort zones in terms of, uh, let's try to get Noam Chomsky. Dude, Noam Chomsky responds to like every email. I bet he would come on. Let's bring him on. We'll this is, this is uh, uh, a listener. Stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. Let's see if I can get <laughs> Noam Chomsky. Um, yeah, I actually just read a book that's sort of a, a, a the other left alternative view to Chomsky, which is Black Shirts and Reds by Michael Parenti. Highly recommend it. Um, but other than that, I feel like that that is about as much as we can cover. Uh, if I have one thing left to say, it is I have uh, solidarity with the Palestinian people, Free Palestine. And I wish we could have talked on that more, but man, you could, we could dedicate a whole series to that. So yes. we, did, we the, didn't want to dive into it. I feel like too much without being able to fully talk about it. So we, yeah, we, we, we laced that one a few times in our, our recordings that we've thrown away of this episode. Um, it's a hot one to touch. A lot of Christians associate the, you know, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you when it comes to Israeli support. So yeah. leave it at that. All right. Well, that said, um, thanks for uh, talking about this with me, Chase. I was hoping we'd be able to do it without uh, getting in each other's faces. And I think we did a pretty admirable job of it. Um, and hopefully it'll get even more easy to talk about as we uh, as we go through the next uh, couple of times talking about this. So indeed, if we can do it, you can do it with your high schooler or with the family member that, um, you know, is the potential socialist. Yeah, don't don't get red faced yelling at the woman who carried you in her womb for nine months and don't you know dismiss don't lose your religion yeah. over this like you know what yeah. like yeah i i'm 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 on christians to 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 that's right to do this it's hard so. i get how hard it is to grapple with these things it is so that said thank you so much for listening uh hope you continue to tune in follow us on uh, social media uh, we're Cross of Gold on most uh, social media sites, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff. And yeah, I hope you'll continue to stay tuned. We got a lot of good stuff coming up for you. So thanks for uh, listening. And with that, I love you, Chase. Hope you have a great rest of your day. Hold on, dude. Love you too. Thank you. He acts, he dies. But principles are eternal. And this has been a contest over a principle. In this contest, brother has been arrayed against brother. Father against son. It is for these that we speak. We do not come as aggressors. Our war is not a war of conquest. We are fighting in defense of our homes, our families, and posterity. This has been Cross of Gold. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'd like to thank 
Sant Invictus for producing our intro and outro songs and uh, look forward to seeing you next time.